Section 1 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in August 2016. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Part 4. Particular Offences. Chapter 16. Bodily Injuries and Poisoning. Section 1. General. In indicating here the most important points to be kept in view in the examination of injuries to the body, it is not intended to intrude upon the particular province of the medical man, but merely to give such brief hints to the investigating officer, be he magistrate, policeman or lawyer, as may preserve him from making serious blunders, when at the first moment before the arrival of the medical man he finds himself obliged to form a provisional opinion. The position of the investigating officer in such matters is somewhat delicate. He must know how to manage the affair himself when no medical man is at hand, but at the same time should not go a step further than the situation demands. He must direct the work of the medical man and see that it fits into the general plan of the inquiry, but on the other hand he must show all respect to the special knowledge of the scientist. He must accept his statements with confidence, but should also, by skillfully directed questions, lead him to the special point demanded by the object of the inquiry. To accomplish this task successfully, to be able to discuss scientifically different cases with the medical man without wearying his patients by useless questions and irrelevant suggestions, the investigating officer should possess a fair amount of medical knowledge, more at least than is usually expected from a man of ordinary education. Such knowledge indeed the intelligent medical jurisprudent expects the lawyer to possess, so that the latter may assist the former and render his labours fruitful. He desires to be able to discuss matters scientifically, for he knows only too well that conversation in which neither party understands the other renders all collaboration impossible. The time when the medical man was content to tell the lawyer to hold his tongue has long since passed, and the medical man knows that the disdain with which he was at one time treated by the lawyer only arose from ignorance of the scientific value of medical knowledge. Only the lawyer who has taken the trouble to acquire the medical knowledge necessary for his duties can estimate at their real value and utilize the truly scientific attainments of the medical man, who is sufficiently intelligent to comprehend the lawyer and is not jealous of his medical attainments. It must be confessed that while there exist many books on medical jurisprudence, they have been written neither by nor for the lawyer. The medical man, with the very best intentions, can never place himself at the exact point of view of the lawyer who has no medical education. He does not know in what the investigating officer is deficient. In particular, he does not know the requirements of that officer when no medical man is available. The following remarks are accordingly made solely from the legal point of view, 
they are not mere extracts from books of medical jurisprudence they attempt to answer questions commonly arising in practice which must be answered before the arrival of the medical man instances of difficulties occurring from one cause or another will also be cited section two wounds by blunt instruments these injuries are the most frequent and among the instruments employed may be mentioned the fist smooth stones sticks poles clubs hammers and particularly in india the handles or backs of mamutis lattes male bamboos rice pounders and ox yokes also many household objects as brass vessels etc among the pokris or hooligans of our large towns a soda water bottle sometimes broken is a common weapon of offence in fact the number of objects that may be used for striking or beating is unlimited and the knowledge of what instrument has been employed is often of first importance in procuring the identification of the assailant one sometimes comes across the most unlikely weapons in mountainous and other districts where the inhabitants are often endowed with exceptional strength and exceptional brutality strange things sometimes happen one day a woodcutter in the midst of a quarrel seized a large piece of wood over nine feet long part of a tree which he had just cut down and holding it in front of him like a ram rushed on his assailants inflicting no fewer than five serious wounds fracture of ribs fracture of collarbone dislocation of hip joint etc in a quarrel in a tavern a young man of gigantic height seized the heavy top of the inn-table and brandishing it in the air brought it down on the heads of the young men who were fighting with him inflicting a dozen grave wounds on the skull with wounds made by blunt striking instruments we must class other injuries somewhat difficult to distinguish from those just mentioned such are wounds following a fall upon a collision with or a push against some hard substance and also wounds caused from large moving masses as in railway accidents boiler explosions accidents in factories etc as to all these kinds of injuries we note the following points one it is not always possible to decide from the nature of the wound itself what kind of instrument was used indeed the wound sometimes presents appearances pointing to a cutting or stabbing instrument as the cause a although not strictly in this class there are cases which must not be neglected where an instrument to all appearance perfectly blunt yet has some sharp or pointed projection more or less visible such as a fence stake with a nail not very readily observed or a small sharp splinter on a branch of wood in one case a farm servant had received on the forehead a wound so deep and accompanied by such brain injuries that it was believed to have been caused by a blow from a hatchet or a sword the inquest however disclosed that he had received a blow from a carriage crossbar which had a splinter over an inch in length this splinter stood out at right angles to the hard beech bar and was so firmly fixed that it could when gliding over the skin 
produce a wound bearing all the appearance of a slash or cut. In cases of this kind, it must be remembered that the portion of the instrument which gave the wound its special character may be easily lost, the nail may drop out, the splinter of wood may be broken off, and this is the more likely as the guilty person does not usually exercise special care in laying down the instrument he has used. On the contrary, in alarm at the result of his onslaught, he generally throws the weapon violently from him. One should never therefore summarily lay aside instruments which at first sight appear to have no connection with the crime, but on the contrary examine them most minutely for the purpose indicated. B. Instruments really blunt may in certain cases inflict long wounds with clean cut edges, especially on those parts of the body, as the skull, where the skin is stretched tightly over the bone. In the case just mentioned, one of the young men who was struck by the tabletop had a deep wound right across the skull, the skin being completely rent. The same result may happen from a blow on the front of the leg, and once, on a person on whom a heavy mass had fallen, there was found a clean cut in the integuments of the abdominal wall. Hoffmann has laid down that wounds caused by a cutting instrument are always wedge-shaped at the base, while the base of the wound caused by a blunt instrument is crushed or bruised. But the latest surgical authorities declare that it is often difficult and sometimes quite impossible to draw any distinction. It may be said that if the bottom of the wound shows signs of crushing or bruising, the inference that the instrument employed was blunt may be drawn, but in the other case, where the bottom is wedge-shaped, no inference can be safely drawn one way or the other. This difficulty is little recognized in India, where hospital assistants and other medical subordinates, as a rule, profess their ability to distinguish without a doubt between a cut caused by a blunt and one caused by a sharp instrument. In ordinary riots, where the combatants are armed only with the sticks or bamboo lattice usually carried by country people, there are frequently head wounds bearing all the appearance of incised wounds, from which the inference is sought to be drawn that axes or knives have been used, and the accused are consequently charged solely on this hypothesis with the serious offence of rioting armed with deadly weapons. 2. Effusion of blood proves little in itself as to the force of the blow. The amount of blood varies with the form of the instrument, the part of the body struck, and even with the individual. It is well known that the same instrument, used with the same force, may produce from an adult but slight bleeding, while causing considerable effusion from an infant or an old man. 3. If the direction of the striking instrument has been perpendicular to the part struck, the surface of separation of the wound appears cut, bruised or crushed, while if the instrument has glanced on one side, the wound is ragged or torn. 4. If the blow has caused rupture of an internal organ, it is almost always fatal. Yet the wounded person may live for some time, for example, with a rupture of the liver from 5 to 11 days, with a fracture of the base of the skull 3 to 12 days, with a rupture of the intestine 10 hours. In such a case this fact must be kept in view. 
In one case, a man had been thrown from the top of a balcony or veranda, but there was no external wound. Four days after, he died, and his death was attributed to a stroke of apoplexy. The medical man whose duty it was to inspect the corpses in suspicious cases, a country surgeon, old and ill, was absolutely certain that the death was not due to internal injuries caused by the fall. A subsequent examination and post-mortem of the corpse disclosed a rupture of the liver nearly two inches in length. 5. When considerable force is exerted, as in the case of a fall from a height, crushing under a heavy weight, etc., serious internal injuries may be caused without the slightest external mark. Even when there is no internal rupture, death may follow from nervous shock. In a case of robbery, a workman begged an old peasant who was passing to take him along in his carriage on the pretense that he was ill, and the peasant agreed. As they were going along, the old man fell asleep, whereupon the workman seized him, threw him out of the vehicle, went off at a gallop, and sold the horse and carriage in a distant village. Sometime afterwards the peasant was found dead at the very spot where he had been thrown out. Apparently he had fallen on his head, without losing his hat of hard felt, which saved him from any external wound. The post-mortem discovered no injury, not an organ was damaged. As, however, it was impossible to attribute the death to a stroke of apoplexy, it was necessarily the result of shock, and so the medical men, taking all the circumstances into consideration, recorded as their opinion that the man must have been thrown from the carriage, though at that time nothing more was known than that the peasant had, the previous evening, quitted a neighbouring tavern. The whole truth subsequently came out, the accused confessed, and every detail was verified. 6. In public house brawls, attacks of robbers, etc., fractures of the base of the skull often happen. It is now established that Wall's theory that the direction of the blow can be established from the aspect of the wound is correct. Section 3. Wounds made by a sharp instrument. In this category are included instruments for cutting and stabbing. Frequently the different blows are combined, a blow with the point and sharp edge, a blow with the handle and the edge, and it is precisely in such a case that it is important for the investigating officer to form an idea of the instrument that has caused the wound before the arrival of the medical man. Generally the shape of the wound, its dimensions and its situation, Will afford some information on this point, although it is true that it will be difficult for the layman and even for the medical man to distinguish blows by some instruments, although very different from each other. It is easy to confound a blow from a hatchet with one from a knife, or a blow from a piece of wood with sharp angular sides with that made by a sword. Above all, the examination should be prolonged and patient care being taken to place the wounded person in the position in which the blow was received. If one concludes that a certain instrument has been used, the whole scene must be reconstituted in the mind and its possibility verified. If doubt remains, one passes on to another instrument, a new hypothesis is formed and tested, 
and so on by a process of elimination until the real instrument has been found. This is a very simple method and gives even to an outsider a good idea of the whole affair, especially if the inquiry be conducted calmly and carefully. 1. Among the wounds produced by cutting weapons, some at least can almost always be referred with certainty to an easily determined instrument. Thus wounds made by broken glass, which frequently occur in tavern brawls, are arched and somewhat shell-shaped, like the broken outline of the glass itself. Straight cuts due to broken glass are rarely observed. In India, glass vessels are not much used for drinking purposes, but, as remarked above, broken soda-water bottles are sometimes used in towns. In a case tried at the Madras sessions recently, the weapon was a soda-water bottle held by the neck, the bottom being broken off. With this, a stabbing blow was dealt on the neck, just above the shoulder and collarbone, inflicting a terrible jagged wound penetrating to the principal blood vessels. Death was almost instantaneous from shock and loss of blood. Again, wounds inflicted by sickles and scythes never show a straight line but a broken zigzag line. This is because sickles and scythes are not sharpened in the same way as knives. Knives are sharpened to a straight edge, while scythes and sickles are thinned out by hammering on an anvil with a steel hammer. They are hammered until thin enough to cut, but there still remains a slight serration, so that the wounds produced by them are irregular and very characteristic. A wound of this nature once seen can never be confused with another. From the peculiar shape of mamutis, the wounds inflicted by them are rarely direct, but of a glancing or slanting character. On the other hand, wounds inflicted by axes or axe-heads with convex edges on long shafts carried by the country people in many districts and commonly called in courts battle-axes, kodali kuti, are often, especially if well-aimed, straight and clean cuts. See page 441 and figures 62 through 77. 2. In wounds caused by cutting instruments, the form of the wound rarely corresponds to the true form of the weapon. This frequently causes serious mistakes. Often an instrument is neglected solely because it does not correspond exactly with the wound. Further, it is of very little use to compare with any instrument wounds which are either swollen or psychiatrized and healing, Indeed, the process of healing, which commences from the moment the wound has been inflicted, rapidly transforms the wound so that it is hardly possible to recognize the primitive form. Even some perfectly fresh wounds, and those in which healing is impossible owing to the death of the victim, correspond but imperfectly with the instrument. The wound lengthens out when it runs along the muscle. On the contrary, when it runs across the muscle, it contracts. It is evident that the edges of a gaping wound must be drawn together before measuring its length, for the edges of a gaping wound are two curved or bow-shaped lines which are straightened by bringing the two edges together. It is only after this operation that measurements can be taken. If taken before, they will be too short. In few cases will the length of a stabbing wound made by a knife correspond with the size of the instrument, 
unless it be withdrawn from the body exactly as it has been inserted. What most frequently happens is that the opening made at the moment of penetration will be lengthened by the act of withdrawing the weapon. Stabbing wounds made by a knife have another important peculiarity, which frequently passes unobserved. They almost always present the form of a slit having two pointed extremities, so much so that one is tempted to believe that the wound has been inflicted by a dagger, an instrument with two cutting edges. To verify this, experiment may be made on a soft body, clay, dough, wood, tanned skin, etc. If a vigorous blow be given with a pocket knife, that is, a knife with one cutting edge and a blunt back, to such a substance the wound will undoubtedly be wedge-shaped. But these substances are not the human skin, and the experiment by no means proves that a similar result will follow a blow on the human body. Examine the point of any knife. We see that this point presents two cutting edges for a distance of at least three-eighths of an inch. Beyond that, one of the edges commences to thicken so as to form gradually the back of the knife. If then one sticks the knife into soft wood, for example, to the depth of three-quarters of an inch, the cut will have the form of a slit with two pointed ends, but if one proceeds to force the knife further in, the back will straighten out one of the points into a line, the wound will definitely assume the shape of a wedge. When the knife is withdrawn, this shape of the wound remains, for the wood is not sufficiently elastic to resume its original form, that is a cut pointed at each end. But it is very different with the human skin, which is extremely elastic. When the point of the knife penetrates into the body to the depth of half an inch more or less, it forms at first a wound with a sharp or pointed angle at each end. As the knife proceeds further in, the end in contact with the cutting side of the knife naturally remains sharp and pointed, but the other end which is in contact with the back of the knife remains so also. This is because the back of the knife does not give its shape to the skin, but only causes further separation, so that the skin continues to be torn in the original direction and still forms a sharp and pointed angle. Medical authorities call this property of the skin its fissibility or tendency to split, splitability, and point out that it is prone to take different directions according to the different parts of the body. The skin thus possesses the same property as some other substances, that namely of continuing to split or tear in the original direction even under the action of a blunt body. The same phenomenon is observed in tearing cotton cloth or paper which has been folded. If the uncut leaves of a book be cut with the back of a knife or a round pencil, the result is seen in a simple form. Thus, when a wound has each end sharp and pointed, it must not be concluded that the wound has been inflicted by a dagger or other double-edged instrument. More frequently the wound has been caused by a knife with a large round or square back. Another peculiarity must be taken into account. Frequently the wound is somewhat narrower than the instrument employed. This is a very important point 
often leading to the exclusion from the hypothesis of some instrument which all the time was the weapon really employed. Hoffmann, who is believed to have first pointed out this interesting peculiarity, explains it thus. A case of this kind can only occur when the point of the weapon is slightly blunted. When such a point touches the skin, it depresses the latter in the form of a cone. A simple experiment showing this is to apply the point of a slightly blunt lead pencil to the skin, say between the thumb and the first finger. When this depression has become somewhat extensive, the continued pressure causes the instrument to penetrate below the surface. But in consequence of this depression, the skin, which is extremely elastic, is much dilated, and when the pressure ceases and the knife is withdrawn from the wound, the skin contracts again, the result being that the exterior wound opening is narrower than the knife. The maximum difference between the size of the wound and that of the knife may be, according to Hoffmann, three-eighths to three-quarters of an inch, a quantity not to be neglected. 3. Another important error may arise with reference to the number of blows struck by the knife. Often one might think there have been several, while in reality there has been only one. This will occur when the blow has been struck on a part of the body where the skin is folded back on itself, as on the necks of old and thin persons. On stretching the skin, one sees several cuts connected together in the form of the letter Z, or even completely separated one from the other. In the same way, if a knife be struck into a piece of cloth folded or rolled up, there will be several cuts. In one case, a young peasant had his ear completely mutilated by a terrible wound. It appeared as if the ear had been transpierced by a number of blows by a knife, starting from the ear hole and going upwards to the top of the lobe. The medical man at once declared that there had been only one blow struck. Owing to the folds of skin and to peculiar anatomical construction of the ear, the knife, with a single blow, caused a wound showing six strips of flesh, so that an outsider would have imagined that there had been as many separate wounds inflicted. 4. If it is of importance to know in what direction the blow of a knife has been delivered, it should be remembered that a medical man can seldom give precise information on the point by simply inspecting the wound. Hence, all the accessory circumstances must be examined and recorded with the closest attention. For instance, the position of the corpse, the shape of the wound, the number of traces, however slight, of effusions of blood, as well as where they are found, the position of the clothes, and, if the hypothesis of suicide cannot be safely put on one side, the position of the hand, whether open or shut, etc., 5. Wounds caused by a sharp instrument may prove mortal, though there be no trace of hemorrhage. They may consequently pass absolutely unperceived. Of these, the most important are wounds made by bayonets or other weapons of a similar shape. Every war furnishes an opportunity for observing a number of such wounds. The most remarkable are wounds caused by a bayonet with four cutting edges, as in figure 114. The wound produced is in the shape of a cross, the length being greater than the width, 
generally without hemorrhage, even if death ensues from the wound. One must, therefore, in all suspicious cases, search with minute care for marks left on the body by weapons of the bayonet class, which are numerous. In one case a person had been killed by a blow from a gimlet in the abdomen, but the wound was not perceived by the examining doctor. His oversight was excusable, for the wound could hardly be seen from the outside, although on examining the body and holding a post-mortem it was clearly exposed. Again, it is very difficult even for experts to estimate the depth of such wounds. The officer who makes the first investigation frequently reports, a small wound, insignificant and superficial, having no possible connection with the death of the individual, while in reality the wound is both deep and mortal. This difficulty of ascertaining the depth of a wound caused by a cutting instrument arises for the most part from the fact that the wound closes upon itself owing to the concentration of the muscles underlying the skin and the first cellular tissue. The problem is still more difficult when the wounded person has turned at the moment of receiving the wound. The parts are then twisted. When they regain their previous position, the twisting disappears and the different layers of pierced flesh are superimposed differently from before. They have been displaced and no longer correspond. Each layer pierced is closed by an unperforated portion. Thus one must act with extreme caution when one hears of an unimportant blow with a knife, in case of a suspicious death. When the knife penetrates into one of the cavities of the body, e.g. the pleural cavity, the depth of the wound can as a rule be ascertained only on a post-mortem examination. The contrary is equally true. Some knife wounds present a horrible aspect and yet are not mortal or even dangerous. This is notably the case with wounds of the head. A skull in Professor Hertel's collection bears in a psychiatrized wound a knife blade one inch in length. The individual died of an illness having no connection with the wound many years after the knife had been struck in his head. The following case can be vouched for as authentic. One man had in a quarrel struck his knife into the head of another man, M, just where the hair commences to grow on the forehead. The knife was so firmly fixed that none of the persons present could pull it out. M went to the blacksmith, who tried his utmost to extract the knife with his largest pincers, but to no purpose. M then repaired to a medical man, three quarters of an hour's walk, who at last succeeded in pulling out the knife with the help of a crowbar. Fifteen days later, M appeared in court to testify that he was quite well and completely restored to health. Again, an old shoemaker in a fit of frenzy drove five nails, each about two inches long, into his head, and yet left the hospital perfectly cured. Many similar instances might be cited. We cannot often enough repeat the words of the celebrated surgeon Liston. Every wound affecting the head, however slight it may be, runs the risk of becoming grave, while however grave such a wound may appear to be, hope should never be abandoned. 6. Very sharp knives do not always produce clean cuts, 
In fact, a knife, however sharp it may be, the point of which touches any part of the body, can produce only a slashed and irregular wound if its blade, instead of being guided in the direction of the wound, is held obliquely thereto. If then, figure 115, the knife takes the direction AB, the wound would be clean cut. If, on the other hand, it takes the direction CD, the wound will be slashed. Wounds made not with the point but with the edge of the knife are never very deep. 7. Scratches are often very important, especially when they arise from the resistance of the victim to an attack. When both individuals are available, the scratcher and the scratched, the nails of the scratcher must be at once examined to see if there is any relation between the nails and the scratches observed. This examination must evidently be made at once, as the nails may be cut, pared, etc. The dirt under the nails, see page 211, often affords strong evidence and should be examined by specialists. This must always be done when there is reason to suppose that a person assassinated has attempted to defend himself by scratching his assailant, a case by no means rare, Women especially in despair have recourse to this means when they have not been rendered defenceless at the outset. The dirt under the nails of the corpse should be collected by means of a piece of wood or paper folded several times. A knife should never be employed as it may scrape scales from the skin and so lead to serious mistakes. Microscopic examination of this dirt will show if it contains traces of skin or blood in which case the assailant should bear marks of scratching. On the contrary, if the corpse bear marks of scratches and the dirt under the nails of a suspected person contains traces of skin and blood, some relation between the accused and the scratches on the corpse may be inferred. Footnote. Minakov maintains that the greater the girth of the chest, the wider the nails, so that one would conclude that very wide nails have something in common with a very wide chest. It is also maintained that the nails of the hand most used, which would be the right hand with right-handed people, are wider than the nails of the other hand. Such points, if established, are of great importance. End footnote. 8. One cannot be too careful in examining weapons put forward as the supposed instrument of crime. It is a strange fact often observed that a guilty person, while otherwise making a full confession, brings forward a weapon very different from that actually employed. An error of this kind may be the starting point for grave blunders. The Graz Criminal Museum contains a skull, the roof of which is damaged by many dents given with a heavy shovel. On the corpse only a cut three centimeters long was to be seen, which looked as if it had been caused by a sharp knife, and at first a youth was arrested whose pocket knife showed traces of what was supposed to be blood. So also in wounds to bones the fissure and instrument do not always agree. The Graz Criminal Museum possesses a piece of skull with the knife that produced the wound. The wound is almost rectangular, only a little longer than the breadth of the knife, but three times wider than the thickness of the blade. 
one would have imagined that the wound was caused by a wide two-beveled chisel or some similar implement. End of section 1